Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, were you surprised this morning when you looked at the, the bulletin or the liturgy sheet and saw the title of this afternoon's sermon? God teaches us how to swear properly. You know, you can swear. You can swear properly. It can be a godly thing to do. Because to swear means to take an oath. And we have it in a number of short sayings or phrases in the English language. For instance, if somebody swears off something, I'm, I'm swearing off dessert, or I'm swearing off drink, that means to desist with a vow. You you invoke the name of God and say, Lord, you are my witness. I am making a vow. I'm no longer going to do this or consume that. To swear off something is to make an oath. Swearing. And it can be a holy thing. You can also swear in when the prime minister or when members of parliament take up office. They are sworn in. And even though we live in Canada, perhaps... The first thing that comes to mind is the swearing-in of the U.S. president. It's always a great big event. And so to swear in is to install in office by the administration of an oath. That's a good and a holy and a godly thing to do. Now, why is it then when we hear the word swear or swearing, we right away think of something bad? The reason is because a lot of the swearing that goes on in daily life is bad. There's a lot of conversation, a lot of speech, which is not thoughtful, but thoughtless. A lot of times, and we know that if we're out there in the world and we're working, whether it's in an office or on a construction site or we're in a school of some type, we just hear people repeatedly invoking the name of God and the name of holy things as an exclamation in a manner which shows disrespect and dishonor, lifting up the holy name of God, lifting up the name of holy things in a way which lifts them up to worthlessness. And that's wicked, and that's wrong. And that's forbidden by the scripture. And that's what we mean when we say to each other, you shouldn't swear. But it's still the case. Let me rephrase that. So you notice, as you hear people swearing, as we deal with it from day to day in our lives, you notice that that people love to use as exclamations or as, 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 uh, uh, as to show their anger at something or their surprise. They like to use the name of God. They like to use holy things. They like to use religious things. They like to use holy and sacred, intimate things. And that's why a lot of the swearing out there is connected to sexuality, which is one of the most sacred and intimate things that God made in creation. The devil loves to pollute and stain and misuse and pervert good things. 
He can produce nothing positively. All the devil can do is try to pervert and twist that which is good. And so the wrong use of holy things and holy words and holy names pollutes and makes foul use of what is holy and good and sacred. And that is an offense against God, an offense against the Creator. And I think that instead of just talking about the people out there that do it, we need to really take stock of what comes of our mouths. Because perhaps there are certain swear words which we just have deemed acceptable for whatever reason, and that we allow ourselves to indulge in. We need to remember that whatever comes out of our mouth is coming out of the mouth of an image bearer of God, children of God, and that the way we use our language is also a way in which we are preaching the gospel to those around us. So let our language be holy and sacred and let it lift up that which is holy and sacred. So we're here in Lord's Day 37. We're still on the third commandment. Why does the catechism have two Lord's Days on the third commandment? What's going on? Well, the reason is because of the historical context when the Heidelberg Catechism was written. It was written in the mid-1500s. The Reformation was not that long ago. And in the context of the Reformation, we we know that Europe, the church in Europe, had divided. And we often think, well, the church divided into, let me see, there was the, the medieval church, which split into the Roman Catholic, and then there were the Reformed. But that's not how the Reformation worked. The Reformation actually was the splitting of the European church into three. There was the Roman Catholic churches that stuck with the Pope and with all of his, and with the church at Rome. There was the radical reformation, which radically reacted against Rome, and that was the Anabaptist movement. And then there was the reformed. So there were three streams that we see in the reformation of the 1500s. And when the catechism was written, if I remember correctly, it was 1563, then people had in mind a terrible event that had happened maybe 29 years before, 30 years before, the terrible things that happened in Munster. So for us, it would be like something that happened in around 1990. So it's, it's a long time ago, but it's still not that long ago. It still can be, if it was a significant event, it can be fresh in the collective memory. And what happened in 1534, about 30 years before the Catechism was written, what happened was that a lot of Radical Anabaptists got together, they took over a city, they revolted against the established order, and it became a a total gong show. A lot of wicked and terrible things happened in that city. Finally, Roman Catholic and Reformed troops together, they were so shocked at how society was being turned upside down, and men were marrying multiple wives and running through the streets with no clothes. A lot of weird stuff was going on. And all in the name of the gospel. So the Protestants and the Roman Catholics came together and besieged the city and took it back out of the hands of the Anabaptists. So when people heard the, the, the name Anabaptists, they thought of revolt, revolution against the established order. But it gets worse. 
they also, when they heard the name Anabaptist, when they thought of the Anabaptist movement, they also thought of certain heresies, because there were strands of heresy in the movement. I'll give you one example, and this is maybe the, the clearest example. Uh, even Menno Simons, who was the leader of one of the most peaceful, if not the most peaceful, least revolutionary Anabaptist groups. These people were very uh, peaceful and not at all like the Munster people. But even Menno Simons, when he taught about the two natures of Christ, he taught that Jesus did not get his human nature from Mary. Because Mary was a human being, and she had human flesh, and all human flesh is evil. So there's no way Jesus has a connection with Mary. God just nurtured a heavenly, brand new human being in Mary's womb, and all Mary did was carry the baby to term. Now, if you open your psalm book to the Belgian Confession uh, in Article 18, you'll see that we actually mention this heresy, because that's what it is. It's a heresy. It denies the biblical teaching about the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at page 506 in your Belgian Confession, Article 18, where we, we confess what Scripture teaches about the true incarnation and the true human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at the second paragraph on page 506, Article 18. Contrary to the heresy of the Anabaptists who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, we therefore confess that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children, born of David according to his human nature, etc. That's a heresy. And a heresy is a doctrine that if you accept and believe it, you lose your salvation. You cannot be saved if you believe in and hold to a heresy. It's a very serious thing that amongst the Anabaptist movement, there were heresies like that being taught. And so because of the revolution and the trying to turn society upside down of the more radical Anabaptists, because of the heresies that were in some strands of the Anabaptist movement, people were a little leery of being identified with this movement. There was one more thing. The Anabaptists are called Anabaptists because Anna means again, and Baptist means to baptize, so they baptized again. They rebaptized. They didn't recognize the baptism that people received as children. They said you have to be baptized only as an adult. I just want to take a few minutes to, to call your attention to the fact that this is not a heresy. Turn to the Belgian Confession, Article 34. Article 34 of the Belgian Confession, on page 513. So this is about the sacrament of baptism. And I just want to draw your attention to the last sentence on page 513. It's half on page 513, and it continues on the next page. For that reason, Article 34, for that reason, we reject the error of the Anabaptists, who are not content with a single baptism received only once, and who also condemn the baptism of the little children of believers. You see that the, the Belgian Confession is careful not to call uh, Baptist theology, in this case, heresy. It calls it a, an error. And that's important for us to understand and realize. We, 
we sometimes in, we work with Baptists or we get to know Baptists as our neighbors or in daily life, uh, the scripture does not allow us to write off fellow believers who we understand to be in serious error with respect to the baptism of children, but are still our brothers and sisters, not our cousins, our brothers and sisters in Christ, when they trust in Christ's merits alone for salvation by grace through faith. So not baptizing children is not a heresy. It's an error, serious error. We've got to deal with it when we talk to our Baptist brothers and sisters, but we ought never to deal with it as uh, or treat it as a heresy. It's not something that when you believe and practice it, you are excluded from life eternal. Okay, so that's the Anabaptists, revolutionary strains in the movement and also heretical strains in the movement and then some serious errors sprinkled on top. So what did the authorities think when they met a Reformed church? When the, when the authorities met Reformed believers in Reformed churches, you know what they thought? They thought, here are some more Anabaptists. Here are some more troublemakers. Here are some more heretics. Here are some more people that want to turn the world upside down. Here are some more people like those Munster people. And so what you see in the Reformed confessions at this time is that the Reformed confessions take great pains to explain to the rulers, who are often Roman Catholics, to take great pains to say, listen, we're just Orthodox Christians. We're not heretics. We confess with the Catholic Church all the truths of Scripture about the Trinity and the two natures of Christ. And we are faithful, obedient subjects. We're not revolutionaries. We, we don't want to turn the world upside down. We, won't, we don't want to destroy civil government. And so you'll notice as you read our confessions, and you'll also notice if you re ever read uh, the letter that Guido de Bre sent together with the copy of the Belgian Confession when he sent it to, to the king, they keep making those points. We are not revolutionaries. We are not heretics. And our Lord's Day is part of that apology or that defense of the Reformed faith. The reason we have an extra Lord's Day about oaths is because we as Reformed churches in that period were positioning ourselves to show that we didn't agree with the Anabaptists on this point. You see, the Anabaptists, one more thing that they refused to do, they refused to swear oaths when the government called them to court. They were called them to court, and the judge said, okay, you're going to swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, the whole truth, so help you God? They said, nope, I'm not going to swear. And then the civil magistrate got pretty irritated with these Christians who were refusing to swear and saw them as trying to turn the civil order upside down. And at first glance, it seems like the Anabaptists had a, had a point. I mean, we read from Matthew chapter 5, and what does the Lord Jesus say there? He says, don't swear at all, verse 34. Don't take an oath at all. Let what you say, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So it looks like a pretty open and shut case. The Anabaptists are right, and I really have no idea where the Catechism is getting this from. But it's not that clear. It's not that simple. We have to look closer. If you look more closely at Matthew chapter 5, you see that the Lord Jesus is condemning the practice of casuistry. 
the practice of making all kinds of legalistic rules because the more rules that you make, the more loopholes you create. That's why legalists love to be legalists. Because the more rules, the more you can have your little loopholes to indulge in your favorite sins. So what was going on amongst the Jews? Well, they were going back to Leviticus 19 verse 12. Can you open your Bible to Leviticus 19 12 for a moment? And this is what the Lord says to his people. 19.12 of Leviticus, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So you're not allowed to swear falsely by the name. And so the people of God at the time that Jesus was speaking here in the Gospels, they said, okay, I can't swear by the name of God and then not keep my word. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to swear by heaven. Oh, I swear by heaven. And then when I don't keep my word, I break my promise, I break my contract. It all turned out to be a big lie. And my friend or my business partner comes to me and says, you lied to me. You didn't keep your word. I say, ah, but I didn't swear by the name of God. I swore by heaven. So that's my loophole. That's my out. I can lie. I can cheat. I can break my word because I did not swear by the name. So I'll swear by heaven. I'll swear by Jerusalem. I'll swear by the earth. And the Lord Jesus comes to these people and says, you think you're so smart, leaving yourself an out so you can break your word, break your oath. But in all of these cases, you are in fact swearing by God because heaven is the throne of God and the earth is his footstool and Jerusalem is the city of God and your head, well, God counts the hairs on your head and not a hair of your head falls to the ground without his will. So you think you're so smart and creative. But in every one of those cases, you are indeed invoking the name of God and profaning his name when you don't keep your promises. And they got really creative. These are just a few examples that we read in Matthew 5. If you turn to Matthew 23, verse 16, you'll see a bunch more. Matthew 23, 16. Look at the, the way they twisted things and found little loopholes to lie and cheat each other. Matthew 23, 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. So you, you can lie. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. You swear by the altar, you can just lie through your teeth. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So this is a very specific situation into which the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. What the Lord Jesus is saying to them is this. You're, you're always invoking the name of God, whether you mean to or not. And so you have to quit doing that. You have to quit playing around with the truth. You have to quit lifting up the name of God to uselessness and worthlessness. 
And you just do it for the most inane reasons. And you've got to stop that. Just speak the truth. Just be a truth teller. That's the standard attitude of an orientation of the Christian life, to speak truth. We know from question answer 102 that a lawful oath invokes God to witness to the truth. So if I invoke God, whether directly by his name or through his temple or through the altar or through the earth or through the heavens, if I invoke God to witness to something that I say is truth, but I know it to be a lie, then I'm asking God to support and to approve the work of the devil because he's the father of lies. And that is blasphemy. That is lifting up God's name to worthlessness. That's why if you remember in Lord's Day 36, at the beginning, question answer 99, we, we saw we are not to blaspheme or abuse the name of God by cursing. That's what we focused on last week. And then I said, perjury, unnecessary oaths will do with this week. That's why perjury is forbidden. You're making an oath to speak the truth. You invoke the name of God. Then you lie. You bring shame upon the name. You blaspheme the name. It's sin against the third commandment. And so our unnecessary oaths, that's the third category here, cursing, perjury, unnecessary oaths, unnecessary oaths, are also an offense to God. They are an offense to Jesus Christ, who is the truth incarnate. You don't just play around and joke around with the truth. Your friend says to you at school, how many candies did you take? You say, only one, I swear. So you take the name of the almighty and infinite and eternal God, who dwells in unapproachable light, before whom every moment all of the billions of angels and the heavenly beings are just falling down over and over and worshiping, saying, holy, holy, holy. And you reach up and you grab the name and you use it in a little argument you have with your buddy about how many candies you took. That's not a good idea. That's an unnecessary Oath. You make light of the oath. You make light of the name. If you're in the habit of saying, I swear, then get out of the habit because you're breaking the third commandment and the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's dangerous stuff. So unnecessary oaths are an offense to God. And swearing by saints or by other creatures is also an offense to God. Because it dethrones God as the only arbiter of truth. It makes light and worthless the very holy and serious act of invoking God to bear witness to the truth. And so sometimes we read it in books and then we just imitate it in our daily conversation. I, I swear on my grandmother's grave. I swear on my mother's honor. Or I swear on the soul of my father. All of that is blasphemy. It is an attack on the holiness of the name of God. And as Christians, we need to say no to all of that. So there are lots of ways to, sh- to swear wrongly, but the title of the sermon is God teaches us how to swear properly. 
So you can also swear properly. The Bible teaches us that. When God's ministers, the government, demand it, when necessity requires it to maintain and promote fidelity and truth, you see, there can be very serious and important occasions when we do invoke the name of God to bear witness that we're telling the truth, that we are faithfully promising something. And this is a good and holy use of the name, and it is based on the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6.13. Deuteronomy 6.13. Let's turn there for a second. And so Deuteronomy 6.13 The Lord says, it is the Lord your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. God tells us to swear. The good swearing, right? Not the bad swearing. He tells us to use his name to swear oaths that is based on the scripture. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah 4. And we'll look at the first few verses. Jeremiah 4, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear, as the Lord lives, if you swear as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. So there is a way, a holy way of swearing by the name, swearing in truth and justice and righteousness to the blessing of our fellow man and to the glory of God. That's what Jeremiah chapter 4 is telling us. And we confess in the Catechism that Saints in the Old and the New Testament did on occasion swear by the name properly in a holy and solemn and reverent manner. And we'll just look at a, two examples, one from the Old, one from the New Testament. So let's go to Genesis 21, first of all. Genesis 21, verse 22. And in Genesis 21, 22, the... Patriarch Abraham is speaking with Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And so this is what the Lord says here in Genesis 21, 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So there is Abraham as the leader of a pretty significant community. He had over 300 men that could fight in battle. He had a pretty big little kingdom that he had. And he's in this international uh, treaty with another minor power in the region. And he, as the father of all those who believe, uses the holy name of God to attest to his honesty and to his truth in the treaty that he makes. And that's a holy use of the name of God. It's a very solemn and important occasion. And then we turn for the other example to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1, 23. 
2 Corinthians 1.23. And here it's the Apostle Paul, of course, and he's talking to the Corinthians and speaking about the fact that he was going to come and then he didn't come. And, and then in the end, he invokes the name of God. 2 Corinthians 1.23, but I call God to witness against me. He's swearing an oath that God is my witness. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. There's a real problem here between Paul and the church in Corinth. They think he's vacillating. He's promising to come and then he doesn't show up. He's not being truthful. He's saying one thing and doing another. And so there's a really bad situation that's developed between Paul and the church in Corinth. And it needs to be dealt with. And so Paul, because of the seriousness of the situation, he calls on the name of the Lord. He says, I call God to witness. Totally legitimate. It's in the scripture. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's invoking the name of God to witness, to telling the truth. And so rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. We've seen two examples. So as we draw this sermon to a close, the question is to us this afternoon, do you know how to swear properly? Are you swearing properly? Are you living in newness of life, speaking the truth with one another and with your neighbor? Is your yes, yes, and your no, no? You see, that's where it starts. The default orientation of the Christian life is to be truth speakers. You carry the name. You bear the name on your forehead, the holy triune name of the holy triune God. And when you say one thing and you do another, when you don't keep your word, you bring shame on the name. You lift it up to worthlessness. So the very first thing we need to consider about our daily life is whether from day to day we are speaking the truth with our yes being yes and our no being no. But how much more is it important to speak truth when we lift up the name expressly in our oaths? You know, it's a good time perhaps for a few minutes now to take inventory of the oaths that we have made before God and before the church and before the society, it's a good time to take an inventory of the solemn promises that we have made in our lives in which we invoked God as a witness. And if you start counting them up, there are quite a few, aren't there? We don't have a lot of time, so we won't go to the forms. But if you look through the forms in the back of the book of praise, then either implicitly or explicitly, it is clear that in each form, the people that are uh, participating in that particular ceremony are making a promise in the presence of God and his people. So what are some of the promises we've made before God? Well, those of us who have children have brought our children for baptism and before God and his people, with God as our witness, we've made serious promises about how to bring up these children in the fear of his holy name. How's that working out? How are we keeping that serious promise, which God is a witness to? If you think of our promise that we make at the profession of faith, in the profession of faith form, it doesn't say explicitly, in the presence of God and his people. But in the adult baptism form, 
which has a section for profession of faith for the new believer, it puts it explicitly. Before the new convert comes into the church and is baptized, they profess their faith. And when they profess their faith, they are called to profess their faith in the presence of God and his people. And there's no reason to understand the regular profession of faith of people who are born in the church any differently. It is a promise we make in the presence of God and in the presence of God's holy church. And one of the promises we make when we profess our faith is that we will submit willingly to the admonition and discipline of the church if, God forbid it, we err in doctrine or life. You know one of the first oaths that believers break when they start straying? It's that one. Somebody starts to dabble with sin and, yeah, I kind of like living in sin. And they start drifting away from God and from the word of God and from holy living. And here come the elders. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Like, this is not good for you. You need to come back to the Lord. You need to repent from your sins. And very quickly, it escalates to the point where the erring believer says, don't call me. Don't visit me. Leave me alone. They have sworn an oath before God. They've invoked the name of the Holy One. They have said, if I go off the track, you come after me in the name of God, and I will submit to the discipline of the church. But together with their sin, in which they're embraced in an embrace of death, they add to that sin, the sin of blasphemy against the name. They don't give a fig for the oath they've made. And that adds all the more guilt and judgment upon the sinner who does not repent. Lots of solemn oaths that we've made in the context of the church. The minister, when he's ordained, when he's installed, makes an oath before God and his holy church. The elders and the deacons, when they're inducted into their respective offices, make an oath before God and his holy church. And those of us who are married have made a solemn and holy vow and oath before the Lord and these witnesses. So those are a few oaths that we've made, that many of us have made. And how is it going in keeping those oaths? Remembering that if we break them, think of what the, the husband promises to his wife on the wedding day. He does, a, he does that as a solemn oath invoking the holy name of God. To love her. To nurture her. To love her with the, the love that the Lord Jesus Christ shows the church. To be willing to die for her. If a husband's living with his wife in anger and bitterness and unkindness and he's imposing his will on her and trying to subjugate her to his desires, then he's not only sinning against his wife, but he's also blaspheming the name by which he made his marriage vows. When he's sitting there late at night looking at other women on the internet, then he's not only sinning against the seventh commandment, he's not only breaking his word to his wife, 
but he's blaspheming the name of the Holy One who has witnessed to the vows that he made. Oh, we don't have time to go into all of the examples, but I think each one of us can do an inventory of the oaths, the solemn oaths that we've made before God. And we can ask ourselves, how is it going? And if we are really honest, I think we have to admit that it's not going so well. Who here can stand up and say, I am such a perfect oath keeper. Keep all my promises. My yes is yes. My no is no. When I lift up the holy name of God to make a promise, boy, do I keep that promise. I am the best husband, the best wife in the history of the world. Never made a mistake. Never sinned. No one can say that. Except one. Except the one. Except the Lord Jesus. What did he say in the psalm? The prophetic messianic psalm 40. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Also the third commandment. The Lord Jesus kept perfectly. And you know what that means for us? His perfect obedience to the third commandment. He has deposited on your account. When you get your celestial bank statement as to what you're owing when it comes to the Ten Commandments and you look under the Third Commandment, what does it say? It says this Son of God, this daughter of God has only ever used the holy name of God with all due reverence and holy fear and honor. Because Jesus kept the law. And that's why we can discuss and study and delight in the law in the third part of the catechism. Where we're talking about the life of freedom that we have in Christ. Because it's the perfect law of liberty. Because the Lord Jesus kept it for us. And there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that incredibly awesome? When we look at ourselves, we're like, wow, that's a whole stack of broken promises. But when we look to the Lord Jesus, then we see who we are in the eyes of God. He sees us as holy and perfect as his own son. Not only that, but what happens when we're in Christ by true faith? You remember Lord's Day 33? This, this is where it all began. We started talking about the Ten Commandments right after Lord's Day 33. We were talking about the true repentance and conversion of man. It's a process. It's the dying of the old nature. It's kind of a process. We keep mortifying the flesh more and more. Going to keep doing that till Jesus comes back or till we are taken up to heaven. And it's the coming to life of the new that also is a growth this growth in the new life. We're perfect in Christ. That's our status. And we experience that holiness and sanctification more and more as the Spirit of Christ works the principle of the new life in us. And what is the new life? Well, first of all, it's, it's to be sorry for offending God, to hate sin more and more. 
But in the positive side, it is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ, a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. So the third commandment is not something that oppresses us. But the third commandment is something that we in Christ just love. We delight in using the holy name of God to his honor and to his glory. And that's a more and more thing. It grows. He works it in us. I want to end by just referring once again to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is speaking about the law. And the law apart from Christ is a very scary thing. The law apart from Christ is a monster. It condemns us. It says you're a sinner. You've broken every one of the commands. And if you just break one command, you've broken them all. And there's only a certain expectation of judgment for you, sinner. That's what the law says to the sinner in his natural state. So the law, the law brings death. The letter kills for those who do not know and are not in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we are in Christ by true faith, the whole thing changes. There's a new relationship to the law. The letter kills, verse 6, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? You look at the end of the chapter, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. No longer that law, that monster which is about to devour and condemn us, but now there is freedom. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If, if the Son sets you free, if you are in Christ, then you can say together with the Apostle James, the law is the perfect law of perfect liberty. And when we look at the law as Christians, because we're in Christ, then look at what it says. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what the promise of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, is for you. The Holy Spirit is working these commandments in your life, in your heart, in your family, in your marriage, from glory to glory. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Praise God for that. Amen.